BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. With Capella University's FlexPath learning format, you can earn your degree online at your own pace and get support from people who care about your success. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. This isn't your average business podcast, and he's not your average host. This is the James Altucher Show on the Stansberry Radio Network. So I have Neil Strauss on the phone with me. Neil, how's it going? Uh, Good, man. Good to talk to you. Neil, I really appreciate this because I know actually you have absolutely nothing to promote right now. Like a lot of my guests, they come on, they have like their latest book or whatever to promote, but I really appreciate you coming on and, and joining the show. No, I just want to do it for fun. And I, you know, I love what you do and the way you do it. So, so this conversation feels overdue. And, and for people, yeah, exactly. I feel like we should have already spoken, but. Just so people know, this is our first conversation. Yeah, yeah, I, but yeah, I, I had a feeling it's not the last. We've, we've been texting frantically at odd hours. Right, right. So, so uh, many people know you, but for those who don't, you wrote, you've written many best-selling books. I believe it was around seven New York Times best-selling books, and the most popular that I'm sure everyone has either heard of or read was called "The Game," and uh, which is about kind of the pickup artist or seduction scene or that subculture that you sort of immersed yourself in for a while. Um, and of course, uh, 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 my personal favorite, which was the most useful to me, is uh, "Make Love Like a Porn Star." So yes, yes, I'm, I'm sure that provided plenty, plenty of tips. <laughs> yes, exactly, very helpful. But uh, you know what? I, what I don't want to ask you the typical thing about the game because I've seen you in a bunch of interviews, and everybody just says, "What are the tips to pick up other people?" So I encourage all all the listeners to read the game because, by the way, it was a, a, a really well written book, fascinating, and or, or watch. All of your interviews, uh, where you repeatedly <laughs> say this, yeah, exactly, exactly. You don't quite say the same thing. Like I really appreciated, like, but my wife and I both watched how you talked to Jessica Alba and like uh, on the Jimmy Kimmel show, and and also what you did with the View, and like you could you can really analyze every second of it to see what you're doing to get Jessica Alba interested in you. It's an amazing. It was an amazing moment. Like, and I said because. I guess go ahead and watch it. I won't explain the whole blow by blow, but they switched my date on Jimmy Kimmel at the last minute. And I said ahead of time, I said, who's the other guest? And they said, Jessica Alba. I'm like, oh, I know what's going to happen. They're going to ask him to pick up Jessica Alba. So I kind of prepped exactly what I used to say when I was doing the game in advance. And so I kind of said the thing I said, and then there was a moment where I knew she could either go with it or not go with it. And by the way, you always have a contingency plan in case someone doesn't go with it, especially when you're, when you're on live TV in front of millions of people. So uh, well, well, she, well, she went with, there's a magical moment. You see the whole, her whole body language change and everything. 
Yeah, it's almost as if you took her out of the show and she's just talking to you. It was great. Yeah, it was it was it was it was, it was wild and um and 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 funnily enough, by the way, you were talking about this stuff and and I think it's okay to say this that I actually got a call a few years ago from a government intelligence agency that requires its field agents to use the book to read the book, and I went like to a secret location that I'm not allowed to disclose and like train them and and the stuff that these you know pimply teenage kids or you know young kids you know people I was running around with through, through the game doing what they were doing was more sophisticated than what what this government intelligence agency was doing. Wow, that's so fascinating because as I was reading the book. Um, so I deal with a lot of business and entrepreneurial stuff. And as I was reading the book, I'm thinking, boy, this would be great. He's using very standard copywriting techniques, but for, you know, picking up girls in bars. And, yeah, no, yeah. you know, and, and how this was, this is incredibly useful for business and for copywriting. I mean, you, you, you take advantage of scarcity, negativity bias, you answer all objections. Like it's straight out of Robert Cialdini's influence. And, and, and so much more, like when you were into this, and it's funny too, I've had, uh, you know who Dan Kennedy, of course you know who Dan Kennedy yes. is. He, he wrote a letter and said it was one of the best sale, best, the best sales manual he'd ever read, which was a high compliment because he's a, that's he a very high compliment. He does. He's the Bible on copywriting. Yeah. And, but, but here's, uh, here's what's interesting is we also, because we were so obsessed with, you know, with, 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 the, with the singular task of the game, we actually would read books on everything for to influence what we were doing. So I remember like one tip came from a real estate book and it said, whenever you're, there were two tips that actually came from a real estate book. One was once you make the sale and you sell a house, if you just say, Hey, thanks, pleasure doing business with you. I'm glad you're going to buy it. And then you leave later, they're going to get buyer's remorse and feel like your whole relationship was just about the sale and then cancel. So it was important after you make the sale to continue talking to the person and make sure they know it was about the personal friendship and connection, not about the clothes. So we realize that when you are out there and you maybe get somebody's phone number, uh, it's the same thing. You don't get the phone number and you run away. You actually continue talking and make sure it's about the relationship and the connection. Otherwise, they're going to be like, this person talked to me for 20 minutes, half an hour, pretending to connect, but they just wanted my phone number and not call you back. So all these things, it was just fascinating, <laughs> the, the, the amount of the depth and breadth of information we, we obsessively studied for that. Well, well, it's interesting because – so like a real estate transaction or let's say um – any sort of big, like million dollar transaction, any high stakes transaction is going to use the same properties. And part of that is people don't just want to sell you a million dollar product. People want a friend. Even right. in a, even in a million dollar transaction, people want a friend. And that's what you kind of are teaching here in this book. Yeah. A, a friend and also not, yeah, someone, and also just trust. They want, they want to trust somebody because again, you can, People will go with it to close a deal with a lower bid because they trust that person. They trust the person's going to follow through and sign the paperwork and not give them grief. So a lot of it's about um, rapport, you know, trust and rapport and connection. You know, um, I, I know I said I didn't want to ask about the technique, so I'm not going to ask Here about we this. Go. Here we go. We already went down the rabbit hole, but yeah. But <laughs> I know. I don't want to. I, I, I'm not going to ask you to like pick me up or anything. Unless, unless that's a great technique, because I'll do that. Like if I'm interviewing someone for Rolling Stone, for example, uh, and, I, and I know I need to ask about some huge scandal that's been all over the news that they don't want to talk about. Instead of asking them head on, I'll ask them obliquely and say, you know, aren't you so tired of people asking so many questions about that scandal? And then you get into it in a way that paces their reality. So maybe you were sophisticatedly doing that with me. Yes. And the sad thing is, I learned that technique from you from another interview you did, but right. 
That's awesome. So, but, um, you know, so, so you wrote this book and then did you know beforehand this is going to be a huge hit or did your life just like completely change once the book hit? No, I, I had, I had no idea. And I think it's true of like so many other people I know that in retrospect, things always look, you know, perfectly planned and marketed, but it was, you know, completely accidental because the books I'd written before with, with these huge rock bands and other celebrities, I knew they were going to sell well because they were just so famous. They could have like, you know, urinated on paper and sold it. <laughs> so, so I, yeah. So I really had this image before of just, you know, nobody being at the book signing and, and uh, you know, some old lady feeling bad for me and buying one for a grandson or something like that. So I had no idea. And then the, and God, this shows how old it was the day when it came out, Hurricane Katrina hit as I was flying to New York to do all the media and everything. So Nothing happened in the in the media, you know, all the things that were there that were set up. There was there were, it was, you know, America's in the midst of this horrible tragedy, and so so uh, so I'm just like, all right, maybe uh, you know, yeah. So so, but somehow it still happened. It did it hit number one like right away and like bam. Yeah, uh, yeah, it did. <laughs> it did. It did. It did. It hit number six or something, but um, if, that week, but uh, but yeah, when it went right there, I I honestly have. No idea how. I really don't. You know, you know what I think part of it is, and I think this is the difference between your books and I would say there's a class of like literary nonfiction dating back from Hunter S. Thompson where the writer puts himself as a character in the story because nonfiction still has to be about storytelling, but bad nonfiction is not about storytelling. It's more about, let's call it technique. Like let's say someone writes a book, How to Be a Leader. They don't actually tell stories. They just tell techniques. But you put yourself in the story and actually are uh, – you don't even give all the techniques, but you really right. immerse yourself in the story. In fact, I, and I always make the decision, it's the hardest decision to make, which is – that if there's sort of a technique or an idea that's important to me, but it slows down the story, I take it out. And it's painful to do. I did it in the most recent book that I just finished. I did it in the, in the, in the game and, and, uh, and I, everything has to serve the story. And sometimes you take out something you just know you want to share or is so important, but you need to let it go. Like what's something that you took out here? Like you don't have to say the technique, oh, but like sure. roughly. Sure. I, yeah. So, 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 so the book I'm, Doing and if the game was about how to maybe meet women, this is about how to stop meeting <laughs> members of the opposite sex and be in a relationship. So there's a lot of real sophisticated um, stuff on why we choose the partners we choose. And again, it, it all that's in there, but it gets more sophisticated in terms of what what needs did your parents meet, what needs didn't they meet, and then you sometimes will choose a partner who is like the parent, looking to get the need met that the parent never. Right. So for me, I'll give you an example. Right. So, so the, saying, the saying is girls marry their fathers and, and boys marry their mothers. No, more, no, it's deeper than that. <laughs> okay. Tell, yeah. Lay it yeah, on me. That, which is this. It's, it's, think, it's more like this. What did you not get from your parent? I'll just ask you. I'll tell you what. Let's let your listeners know you. Okay. Okay. So here's the question. What did you, growing up, you're 12 or 8, choose whatever age you go back to, what did you not get from your parents that you, that you needed? Uh, uh, you, go ahead. I, I didn't get – physical affection and, and but i think that was common for suburban middle class jewish kids because the focus was on education and and monetary success and not so much on like hugging and let's go to the ball game sort of thing great and and by the way here's what i love right so we're already in it so listen so so right away i love how you say it and then what you do is there's a common defense technique called globalization 
right? Okay. You take something right. I wanted, I wanted to apply it to everyone else. <laughs> you apply it to everyone else when, and then what it does is it distracts from that, that say in therapy or something, someone will do that because it takes away from their own pain. But you know what? Who cares what everyone else did or didn't do? All that matters is you and how it affected you. But I love how you went there and you went to defend them and you use that instant technique. So that's globalization. So the point is, by the way, you know who else says that exact same thing that you said? Who? Who I've interviewed who says the exact same thing? Um, Hugh Hefner. Really? That's so fascinating. He, so his, so his part of his theory about himself, I think it's only part of the story. I mean, I know it's only part of the story as far as I'm uh, concerned, but part of it is that, you know, he, he, his mom was always distant. He never got that female, uh, you know, affection and touch. And now obviously he gets as much of it as he can for <laughs> 78 years or whatever it's been. And, and so, and then when you, um, gosh, I don't know your personal life. You're, you're married, right? Yes. Cool. For how long? Uh, I've been married since 2010. I'm almost at my five-year anniversary. Great. And is she is she physically affectionate or not? Oh yeah, yeah. No, she's great. Great. So so you, so you feel like what you needed was physical affection, and then you went then and then now your your uh, partner is very physically affectionate. Yeah, and you know the thing is though, I got married at the this is my second wife. I got married to her at the age of um, whatever oh, it was. For, let's for, go with the first one. <laughs> first one was the opposite. Yeah, exactly. That's what I'm thinking. Usually, usually you learn. So the first one, like you. And then I'm going to go off on. A, I'm just going to go off on a limb, but you can just correct it where it's right or wrong. But usually, that with the first one, she is more physically distant from your mom. But you feel like, hey, if I can get a physical affection from her, that I'm healing that childhood wound that I had. And then what happens out there is she doesn't get it, and you get. And again, there are, I'm sure there are many other things going on in the relationship besides that. And I think also there are many other things going on in your childhood besides that. But going off this one point is either, and you can tell me if I'm right or wrong. And just it's more a question disguised as a statement, which is that either she was. Physically affection. Okay, yeah, she was dis- physically distant. You thought, hey, if I can get that, now I'll heal that wound. That, and then either, hey, wait, let me, hold on one second. Yeah. I'll make the point. I want to hear. I want to hear it. Even if I'm way wrong. I just want to hear it. That someone else can extrapolate to them. So either what happens is, a, you don't get it, you get frustrated, and that leads to to tension and a power struggle. Or b, you get it, and it's so unfamiliar, you just don't know what to do with it and can't handle it. So go ahead. What have what were you about to say? So so, so I'm wondering that sounds. Great as a theory, and that matches the the whole situation. But uh, how do you how do you know that's not just a theory? Like I could I could extrapolate also uh, from from hearing about different relationships. I could maybe make that theory. But uh, how how did you get beyond that to find that that was okay? Probably happening in many relationships. I, I guess my answer is like I don't actually care in this <laughs> sense. All I care is that it's true for me. And then I'll write about it. if it's true for other people, cool. If it's not, not. Because here's the thing. It's all just a freaking theory. <laughs> right. Everything is just a theory. And everything proven, I mean, look at the whole like kind of biohacking health movement. One day it's raw food, the next day, no, you got to boil your kale now. You can't eat raw kale. Like it's all just theories and they change all the freaking time. And often the researcher with the loudest voice wins. And in fact, if you want to go off research, research has proven that research is wrong because there's so much confirmation bias. There's publication bias. There's all kinds of crazy things going on. And Anything so so I mean so, uh, there so there there is this whole and I love there's this whole kind of TED Talk culture we're in now where someone says I'm a scientist or they have a doctor for their name or they use the word research that then we must automatically accept it. Uh, however, my thought is I just use what works for me and hey if it's if, you know if it's 75 percent true it's it's better than than most other things. So the answer is the burden is not to prove it. The burden is just does it work for me and make my life better. You know it's funny you say that because um, a it sort of confirms my belief that uh, it's the story that's important as opposed to the technique. And right. so, and so obviously 
obviously you want to be not just entertaining, but educational because it's nonfiction, but the story is, is drastically important for the readability. Yeah, exactly. And, and to me, I'm less, I guess here's, here's what I kind of, here's what I kind of do is, or at least in some of my books, which is there's a problem in my life and I'm having a problem with like, again, relationships were like beyond a problem. I was so bad at them. I was, I could get into them easily, but I was really bad at being in them and I was even worse at breaking up. Um, so the breakup would be as long as the relationship half the time. So, so I'll find a problem and then I'll, then I'll think, then I'll just try to solve it and just actually dedicate my life. I can have the luxury of saying, Hey, if there's a problem I'm solving, I can just make that my next book <laughs> and dedicate, make it a full-time job to solve it. And then I'll right. solve it for myself. Problems are always it. content. Yeah. yeah. And I'll, and again, I'll try everything and I'll share it. And if it works for other people who are like me, great. If it doesn't, that's not great. I actually have a theory that most people's audience you know, you write something, right, James? You write something and then you share it and a bunch of people uh, connect with it and you think, oh, it must be true because look at all the people who connect with it. But often I think we're just connecting with people who have similar patterns, similar uh, childhoods as us. I know I'm deep, going deep on childhood, but here, let me give you an example. So I'm sitting with Robert Greene. <laughs> You'll probably kill me for saying this, but whatever. No one's going to listen to this, right? No, no, a hundred thousand people are going to listen to this. Great, good. Okay, so it's just between us and. <laughs> and by the way, Robert Greene's been on the podcast. Smartest guy on the planet. Yeah, love Robert Greene. And so Robert Greene saying, you know, um, I, I have. I, I'll tell you what. He, so here's what's interesting. Him and I both had like the same kind of like mother, which was sort of a very narcissistic mother, right? So what happens? He writes the art of seduction. I write the game. I talk to like four other people who write, write other books like that. We all have the same kind of, you know, kind of narcissistic mother who, you know, um, what's the word for it? Like engulfed us, right? So what happens is then you write these books often about say power, this, this kind of power struggle or having power over the opposite sex or something like that, that, and then everyone likes, and you think this is what guys need or they like, but then you realize, no, I'll go to my seminars. I'll ask them about the way they were raised. And a lot had the same kind of parental constellation as me. So the point I'm trying to make is this. And again, it's just an unproven theory that I have no basis for other than my own experience, which is I often find if you go deep, you'll find that a lot of your audience may have had the same, you know, key upbringing elements that formed, you know, who they were. You know, I guess if this is related to the game also, which is that here you had somebody who who exerted massive power over you, a, f a female figure who exerted massive power over you as a child. And so you then tried to reclaim that power by essentially joining this pickup scene, which is all about uh, kind of these, you know, tech techniques or cognitive biases to have power in that scene. Right. Which is like, I won't be my mom's victim again, which is total nonsense that I actually believed at the time, which is why it's important to know who you are and how you're raised and what your beliefs are. So you know, the choices you're making are, you know, healthy or unhealthy. So I totally agree. I think that yeah, that's exactly the point. Well, you know, you bring up an interesting point in one of your most recent uh, posts or, or letters that I got from you, which is that um, on one end of the scale, you can remember all these techniques uh, for, you know, either controlling a situation or a pickup or whatever, or you can really learn deep down like uh, what's inside yourself and just rely on that. And that's probably just as successful. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. That, yeah. The point, yeah, exactly. The point, the point of that was a lot of people try to change your behaviors. And that's easy to change your behaviors, but if you don't change your sort of beliefs, whatever it is that motivated the behavior will find another way to, to kind of come out sideways. So working on your beliefs, you know, 
are really tough. It's tough to recognize them. It's tough to change them. Uh, but once you change or alter them, and again, we all walk around with these beliefs. I, you know, I'm not an every actor. So many actors I know, right? And I'm, I'm in LA, so it's the, it's the capital of you know kids who felt they didn't get enough attention and now want the attention of the world to fill that hole. So you know, so what about you know you if you just feel like I'm enough as I am without needing anybody's attention, you can actually walk the world as a complete person and then maybe become a great artist instead of a attention whore. It's interesting because you you do say. Uh... You know, the book opened you up to, to self-improvement, but it also opened you up to spirituality. Like, how do you define spirituality in this context? I mean, I think spirituality is just whatever system you believe yourself to be a part of, you know, outside your, your body. So whatever, whatever way you feel you fit into the, into the world and the universe is your spirituality, whether you believe that's a, just that all things are connected, <laughs> you know? Uh, right. Even scientifically, one can believe, yeah, it's the force, or just you can scientifically believe everything's atoms and they're all touching and vibrating, so we're all connected. Or you can can be a, you know, a higher power or a god, or it could just be it's all meaningless and nothing matters. That that's whatever that is. That that's what I see as your spirituality is just your you're the way you feel like your the system of your body fits into the system of the universe. But you know, even that feeling of like, uh, let's say, let's say the it, it kind of gives to this this feeling of nothing matters, and that actually helps in lots of situations. Then you don't have to be as concerned what people think about you, for instance, which is a huge uh, battle in both business or seduction or whatever negotiation, everything. Yeah, and and, and uh, <laughs> is that your philosophy? Uh, no, I I kind of. Um, I'm a big believer that people should be grateful all the time because that, mm -hmm. key, that, that you can't be grateful and regretful or anxious at the same time. So anytime I feel like I'm anxious, I try to notice that and replace it with feelings of gratitude. And that keeps me present in the now. And it also pre prevents me from giving a shit what other people think of me. Interesting. Interesting. Cool. Because if grateful. I'm grateful for everything in my life, then why do I have to be great? Uh, why do I have to have even more? you know, in terms of what people think of me. Interesting. And, you know, in two weeks, cause again, I love, like, I love using myself as a self-improvement, you know, uh, I just like trying everything. It can't hurt. I'm actually in two weeks going to something in Florida that a friend highly recommended called gratitude training. So, so I'll let you know how it is. Yeah, that sounds excellent. And, uh, it's, you know, you know, one thing, that really helps me with gratitude training, even though I have no idea what that uh, right. thing is about, is whenever I pass someone on the street, I imagine I'm their mother. Oh, God. Okay. And, and, and so, and then you just naturally feel this like warmth, uh, you know, towards them. So it's kind of, and so it's kind of odd. Like if it's a, if it's a, a girl passing, sometimes they think I'm hitting on them because I'm just smiling. Or if it's like a man, I'm smiling at them. So that anybody could think of all these things, but it gives me the, just these natural feelings of well-being towards all of these other people around. Is that what, what is that what your mom was like? Was she no. passionate? No, no, no it's, know, it's just kind of like my mental that's, that's image. That's such a funny choice with a mother. Don't it is my mental image of what a mother should be. Right. <laughs> so the other thing I try to imagine is, is that every person I come into con, you know, everybody says live life like you're going to die tomorrow. So I do the reverse. I live life like everyone else is going to die tomorrow. Right. So right. like, that's why I, I, I'm talking to you like, 
oh my God, maybe this is the last chance or the only chance I'm going to have to talk to Neil Strauss because right. he in might die he, tomorrow. Because he dies and you become the last man on the in the universe. Right. I think that yes, yes, your next book is I Am the Mother You Never Had. That's it. That, that's a good one. <laughs> I don't know about that. So, so you know, one of the things that um, – oh, gosh, I'm asking more about the game. Uh, one of the things that scared me about the game, and I'll be totally honest because I'm, you know, deep down an insecure guy. One of the early chapters – because you didn't get enough affection from your mom. Exactly. <laughs> that, that's exactly it. We're get we're we're we're, we're we've narrowed it down. But um, one of the women um, in the, one of the early chapters was married and insi- ever insisted, you know, this can't work on me. Whatever, I'm married. And then, of course, uh, in the next few pages, she's with two other guys other than her husband. And that like scared the hell out of me. Like, if that could happen to that woman, could that happen to any woman uh, potentially? Because um, you didn't have the security growing up, that you don't have the confidence that you're the you're the best one she can be. And anyway, yes, okay, yeah. So yeah, but yeah, you know what's fascinating? And I'll stop beating up about your childhood because I'm actually curious more about it now. Um, but that's it. But first of all, going back to beliefs, all those beliefs, like, hey, I'm not enough for my wife. Uh, you know, I'm, uh, you know, I'm not enough as I am. And I just, I read a great quote which I'll read you. I just texted a very, very successful friend this quote um about productivity and and uh and how that's almost a form of sort of self-medication and stuff um but but uh anyway going back to the more shallow points of the deep point the more shallow point is this yes it was true when i did the game if i ever met if I ever as ever out and i met a woman who is married or in a relationship uh that and again i would not that i used to say when i did all the interviews it was a code of ethics but I, that hardly even sounds ethical as i say it now but i used to say and it was true that I wouldn't hit on them, but if they kind of hit on me, I would allow it to happen. So it's fucking horrible. I can't even believe I said that as being ethical, but the ways we trick ourselves into, into doing something we but, wanted. But it was great that you described that in the book. Like, again, what was oh, great about your book yeah. – oh, oh, sorry. Go ahead. Yeah. Finish the point. Uh, oh, no. So the point was this, that if I met somebody who was married or in a relationship, you had a better chance of sleeping with her that night than someone you met who was not. And you, if you didn't sleep with her that night, you might it might never happen because – you didn't sleep with someone her that night, then you have to exchange contact information and then there, it's more uh, stressful for her. You could get caught. So in other words, I found that your odds of sleeping with someone who's married in a relationship the night you met them were higher than of somebody who was often somebody who was single. Also, it's probably because there's, there's some sort of selection bias that night. Like you're only meeting the women that night who are probably open to having some kind of, you know, relationship outside their marriage. Yeah, exactly, exactly. And maybe they're out. And again, sometimes you meet someone who was out to get revenge on a cheating boyfriend or husband or felt, you know, their self-esteem was hurt. So they're out looking for that fix. So, you know, a lot of the, a lot of the techniques. What a horrible, what a, what a freaking horrible. I think we were still talking about that book. Yes. Go ahead. What a horrible. I mean, I I swear I could never write that book now. I couldn't even go in that, go in that world now, but I think it's because I worked on the beliefs now instead of the behaviors. No, and I, I, I think though what was great though is that how honest you were about that in the book. And again, right. I think authenticity in all of these books, I, I, I'm willing to bet the more authentic you are in a book and you've written enough books, you could probably almost do a scientific experiment. The more you were authentic in a book, probably the better sales there were for that book. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I find it true, man. I mean, I'll tell you a couple thoughts on that. I think they're important to say. One is I was so authentic that I actually thought of writing under another name and pretending like I was the ghostwriter of it because I was so scared for it to come out. But the second thing is a lot of people come to me to write their book, write their, you know, ghostwrite or co-write their books and I'll talk with them. And if anyone is scared of what other people will think or scared of how they're going to come across, 
or scared to show their insecurities or their their things they did that they're not proud of, I will never do a book with them because no matter how well-known they may be, because the reader senses that and they feel that and the reader's intuitive and they know when someone's holding back. And and there's a lot of quote, quotes on writing. In fact, I have a friend, well-known magazine writer. His book did not do well. And it's because he's he's too scared to be vulnerable and to, to show himself. In fact, when he read the book I just finished, he's like, what are your parents going to think? I can never do that. And he's all stressed out what my parents are going to think. And you know what? <laughs> You got you got to you own your own story, and you have to tell your own story, and you have to tell your truth. Well, you know uh, the reverse side of that is that uh, this is a writing suggestion. O- maybe only write the things that you're afraid to write about. Yeah, for sure, for sure. And you know what? If you're afraid to write out, the chances are those things that you're most afraid to share are the things other people need to hear. Right. I I know this. I know this for a fact. Like so. So I, at one point, I switched from kind of like writing about stocks or finance to kind of writing about myself and my failures in business. And then and then suddenly, my uh, you know people who related to me uh, or related to my story, that audience grew incredibly. Yeah, and I think we're in this world now where a lot of people are trying to build their so-called platform, right? Yeah. And they're trying to build their platform by choosing one niche. And in that niche, they're going to be the king of the niche. And it's just a recipe for insincerity and um, and not having an audience because uh, it's the whole idea is so manufactured and the whole idea of manufacturing yourself. It's so, it's a, you know, it's, it's a dead end way to go. And I agree. A lot of people usually get that big breakthrough when they just decide to be authentic. But here's the key. Authentic and interesting. You know, there are parts of myself that are so authentic that are just, but they're boring. So I know to cut them out of the book. Well, you know, um, another thing you mentioned earlier, which is, um, you know, I asked you about theory versus uh, the science of things. Um, it, this dates back to to Buddha. Someone asked him, "Well, how do I know what you're saying is correct?" And Buddha says. There is no way for you to know if what I'm saying is correct. This is so Buddha was the best marketing That's guy great. of all time. He That's said great. he said this works for me. You should just try to see if it works for you. Awesome. So so we we dropped some Buddhist stuff earlier. That's good. That's I'm glad we we, we touched on that. Even even you were talking earlier even about the idea of meaninglessness and are we going you know nihilism and Buddhism kind of have the same thing. It's all transient. It all passes by. Nothing matters. But one's a positive way of looking at one's a negative way of looking right. at it. Right. So, you know, the other thing is, uh, you know, taking out the the pickup scene completely, a lot of a lot of what you talk about are techniques for people to get out of their comfort zone, because it might not be the case that people need to know techniques to manipulate people. People just need to know, gosh, uh, I've been such an insecure, shy guy for 30 years. I just need to know how to get out of my comfort zone first. And so so forgetting all about the pickup scene. What are like uh, suggestions you've seen work or you've tried to get out of your own comfort zone, whether in writing or life or relationships or whatever? Yeah, I think I, I, I really think this is where having a good friend, you know, com- comes in, somebody to uh, to help to, to, to who knows you well enough that they're going to push you outside your comfort zone and tell you when you're sort of taking the safe route. Because again, if, if sometime for some people to I'll tell you what, there's, there's sort of like the fake get outside the comfort zone that's still in line with the comfort zone. Like, oh God, I would never do something like this, but here I am and I'm doing it. But really, like, if maybe it's not something you, you know, it's, then there's real get outside your comfort zone. Cause I know people who are, you know, autodidacts and big learners or big self-improvement people, but they'll all learn in just one area where they're trying to learn and they'll ignore another area that they need the most. So there's sort of fake getting outside your comfort zone. Well, what's an example of that? Uh, let me just think of an example of what, that. What's a fake comfort zone? 
let's see, a fake comfort zone is like, um, let's see, a fake comfort zone could just be, oh, I, you know, I never travel and I'm going to get stuff outside my comfort zone and take a trip to this, you know, uh, to just somewhere random. Someone's going to give me a ticket. I'm going to go there, but maybe you actually do like adventure, but you're, maybe that's a bad example. That's what I'm thinking of offhand, but I know a lot of people who sort of, that's the sort of fake comfort zone, let's say. Right. It's, it's something you kind of really secretly want to do anyway, but you just haven't done or don't do. Or there's another, maybe it's not, maybe it's outside of a comfort zone of one sort of compartment of your life, but in another compartment, it really is the stuff you love. Um, you know, and then I wish I, if I can think of a better example later, I'll do it. Then the sort of real comfort zone. Well, what about an example with you? Like, let's say after the game came out, you had plenty of opportunities open to you, right? Because, because you know, there, there's a mantra in kind of the infopreneur space that if you write about one of these things, get paid, get laid, lose weight, you're going to make money. So was it out of your comfort zone to sort of decide, okay, should I start a business in the pickup scene like many of the people you mentioned in the book? Oh, for sure. I hated it. I, I hated it. I remember like the first time like I kind of did it. I remember the moment I heard it was success, like I had this feeling of like dread and horror washed through me. I remember exactly. I was, there. I was driving to meet the people who were doing like the business end of it and I was going through a toll booth. And they called and said, Hey, it's already sold out in like half an hour. And I just had this feeling of like horribleness. <laughs> so, what, why? Because so, you were afraid to sell or because you were afraid you wouldn't, um, uh, 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 demonstrate success? Oh, no, no, no. I was afraid to sell. Like I've, I mean, keep in mind, I'm coming from a journalist background. Right. And, and, uh, and that's it. I, I you know, I write and, and then that's it. And just the idea of selling something and, the idea and just remembering being broke in New York and having to sleep. I couldn't even afford a mattress. I slept on like a sheet on the floor and, you know, and so I, and I still, so, so there's a part of me that just doesn't like, I just never, my, I guess my mom always said never a borrower nor a lender be or something. And I just always thought that I don't want to, I don't know. I don't know. I just never sort of money from an individual versus money from a corporation felt was, it was different. And I just was, was not comfortable with it. Even again, if, if I'm give it's the, it's great and I believe in it. it's changed my life and it's changed the life of people are going to get it. Just that was a zone of not comfort for me. So it's, it's yeah, continues to be. It's interesting because I, I have a similar issue and um, it, when you write a book, of course, people buy it. So you're selling books, but there's this kind of like publishing company buffer in the middle where That's you get, true. you're, you're getting all your checks from, you know, the big corporation, not from the individuals buying your book. I got to charge for the book. It's the company. It's true because I'll always like, I'll speak at a conference and like, Hey, you can bring up your books and set up a table and someone sell it. I've never once, you know, hand sold, you know, or a table sold or had anyone do it for me, uh, you know, a uh, book, but it's interesting, but I mean, it's obviously a limiting belief and total nonsense because everyone's just buying your book anyway and they're happy to do it. And if they're not happy to do it, they can find a place to steal it online and it's all good. You know, it's a, it's a choice they're making and presenting them with that choice. But again, for some reason that's just, and again, it's probably from that journalist background. So that was an example of stepping outside of my comfort zone. It's, it still is, but I'll give you another example. I was having a discussion last night with my, with my wife who were coming back, um, driving back from a um, thing we were at. <laughs> and, uh, and I love talking. I have a vast sense of curiosity. I love talking to people and, and, and knowing about them. And she uh, was kind of ready to go and I was talking. So we're talk going back and we we're talking about shame, right? What is shame? In fact, in the game, a lot of approach anxiety, being scared to talk to other people is not an anxiety about approaching. It's just personal shame, putting other people above, you know, yourself when in reality, all people are equal, right? Like, well, what's, so, a, what's an example where you might feel shame talking to somebody? Oh, I don't, but I'll tell you where I would feel shame. 
karaoke. So my wife and I made this pact that we're just going to go karaoke because my fear would be getting up in front of people and like singing because that would be the fear of public humiliation, which for many people is bigger than the fear of death. Uh, You know, just the fear of maybe just not being great at something, going up and failing and that being okay. Uh, and again, she has a great singing voice, but only when no one can hear it. So, and she can't do it in public. So we thought, you know what, we're going to, this is like, she's, she's terrified to do it. I'm terrified to do it. And, um, and even to walk up without practice and just do a song. So, so as a small example, getting outside our comfort zone, that's, that, that's our next project for that. You see, you know, I had one guest, um, on a few months ago, Who's uh, a well-known uh, movie writer and director, and he was experiencing writer's block. And so the way he got over that was his own version of that, which was to do stand-up comedy, um, because yep. then you immediately are going to constantly feel uh, failure and humiliation, no matter how good or bad you are, and it kind of gets you over that inner critic. Yeah, the difference. And again, guess what? I actually did that before I did the game for the New York Times when I was writing there. I went undercover. I talked them in an article where I went undercover as a stand-up comic for six months. Wow. Try to make it as a stand-up comic. But I did exactly that just to kind of, and it helps you. Yes, it helps you get on stage and be comfortable talking to people in front, on stage. But the difference is everything is very, very, very well planned, you know, and you work on your tight five, your tight five minutes. And once you have that five minutes, they're going to laugh at every point, you know, they're going to laugh. And, uh, and there's some kind of, there's actually some, some, uh, confidence in planning that but to walk in to walk up there and actually not know what you're going to say and then say something <laughs> you know that's more impressive because it's really a it's really a controlled situation and it's a learning curve and there's some fun there's some there's some fun too but i agree it's a great way to get outside your comfort zone is doing stand-up comedy uh, but, but even more and even improv comedy more so because then you're really creating a relationship on stage yeah so it seems like a common theme then of a lot of these things you were writing th- during this period and i don't know if this occurs too in your in your upcoming book but a lot a common theme was uh uh, how do I break out of my comfort zone? Yeah, because that's where learning and growth happen, and that's why you're asking the question in the first place. You yeah, I want to know. Yeah. yeah, or no, because you know that outside a comfort zone is where the most learning and growth happen. Yeah, so 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 what do you? Th- so again, you you gave an example of like some some fake comfort zones, but what's um what's something that you would? So other than karaoke, now what's something that you would suggest to people? Hey, try this the next time you're at X. I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a, I'll tell you what. Whatever you're making excuses about not doing is what you should be doing, right? So whatever you're making excuses about not doing, it should be doing it. It can be a small thing or, or it can be a big thing. But think, think about the thing. It's the thing that you're most fear. The thing, I think it's great when you think there's something you're going to do. Again, a, a common sense thing that you think. How about this? And again, no one's asking the question, so I'm going to think about it out loud. When you're attaching consequences to something that really objectively doesn't have negative consequences. So obviously like jumping out of a plane without a parachute, we attach a negative consequence to that. And it does have a negative consequence. Jumping out of a plane with a parachute while an instructor is holding you um, is let's just say a fake fear. Cause again, your chances are, are worse on the LA freeway of, you know, I'm not sure exactly what the stats are. Again, in my experience when I jumped off, it was okay. <laughs> so, um, so, so I think it's, so maybe the, maybe the rule is if you're attaching a negative consequence to something that really objectively may not have a negative consequence for you, then maybe that's something worth, worth trying. So, so, um, since, since the game, obviously you've written a bunch of books, you've had, you've had ongoing success. You've also started, uh, your, your uh, company style life that, uh, uh, is about these techniques, but how did you then, 
um, kind of break out completely from the scene and meet the uh, lady who became your wife and now, you know, moved on to bigger and better. There's a quote from John Cage, the composer, and he says, my credo is be open to whatever comes next. And that's it. I'm, I'm kind of open to whatever, whatever comes next. Like, I think the biggest challenge is not to be trapped in what you did before. Like I talked to, again, cause I interview musicians all the time. I talk, I, there are always, there's always this fear that my audience expects this of me. What do I do now? And, uh, the answer is all people know of what you've done is what you've done before. They don't know what you're going to do next. So you just keep doing what you do next. It's the hardest thing. And I've been having this discussion with a lot of people lately is, and I'd be curious for your experience is it's really easy. You have nothing to lose when you're just trying to start a company or, or write a book or put an album out or direct, write your screenplay or make a film, whatever it may be. But then once you have that first success, oh, then you have something to lose. In fact, I was talking to a friend who is a magician and not, not a guy from the game. Uh, and he had a hugely successful show and he's just got writer's block for his next show because he has something to live up to now. No, it's very true. Like, you know, I, I, I almost curse the days where someone I really respect writes me and says, I love your writing. Cause then I know I'm shot for the day. <laughs> right, right. Because right. then suddenly I'm going to be writing. That's my audience. Well, shit. It, and what did that guy love about it? How can I do more of that? And then you're not, you're not, you're not kind of evolving. And again, you know, again, you make a big thing out of failing. Like, 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 like you said earlier, it's nothing, nothing, nothing to hide. It doesn't matter. I think you, you got to be connected passionately to what you're doing and do do what's, do what's true to you. And, and the rules change every month, every week, every year. And, and I think the biggest, the biggest uh, mistake people can make is being attached to what worked in the past. I, I think that's very true. I think, and, and you know, there's only so many stories from your past you can tell, and there's only so much drama in your present you can tell. So sometimes you have to actually create out of like other, or, or you have to remix in innovative ways what's inside of you. And that's, uh, that's the source of creativity, but it's also going to be different from what your audience is used to. And that's okay. In fact, um, I, there's a, I, again, I was talking, there's a, friend of mine. Sorry, I keep mentioning these friends and everything, but you have so many friends. I have so many friends they're there. They're, so he's a producer and there was a band that was kind of well-known in the, in the nineties and they were coming to make an album. And, and he, they said, well, he said, I love this thing you wrote in your, in your, in your book. Can't you just do something like this? It was a poem or he wrote or something. And I was like, well, no, that's not what my audience wants. And the band doesn't like this. It's not what we do. We play this kind of music. He says, listen, your audience likes you. So this goes to everyone. Listen, your audience likes you. They don't like what you do. They actually like you. You think they like what you do, but they like you. And whatever you do is you. So go do, you know, go do that. And if they hadn't, if they kept doing what they'd always done, they'd be forgotten. Instead, they just kind of did the thing they were scared their audience wouldn't like. And that wasn't true. That felt not true to what they'd done before. And that became their kind of biggest hit. And they're still around. Uh, interesting. Can you say the name of the band? Uh, you know what? I, the story might have been told told to me privately, so I, I shouldn't. Okay, no problem. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, so, so I was wondering about this. I, I read that you uh, in 2010 started your own imprint with Harper Collins. Right. Uh, how did that? How did that happen? Like, how did that? What happened to that? 
Yeah. So yeah, it was, Ign- it was Igniter books and, and uh, I just got excited because I was seeing there were so many great writers. I was, there were so many great book ideas and so many people were coming up to me and, you know, I couldn't write them all. So I thought, Hey, why don't I just find the idea, find a great writer for it and, and make it happen. And I got to make that happen. I did. My first book was with Larry Harmon, who was Bo- Bozo the Clown. Yes. He had childhood here. I grew up in Chicago and now, and, and I really had bad, uh, he, he uh, passed away just before the book came out, but he got to have his story told and it made me so happy. And then there's a group called the Leuven Brothers. This won a, a Grammy last year for like Lifetime Achievement or in music and amazing bluegrass band from the 40s. One, one evil brother, one very good brother. And it's like a Coen Brothers movie, their story. And if you, if anyone's on Google, look up the album cover, Satan is Real by the Leuven Brothers. It's probably the greatest album cover of all time, Satan is Real. Um, and, um, and their song Knoxville Girl is the greatest murder ballad of all time, period. Knoxville Girl by the Lubin Brothers. Anyway, so, uh, so one brother was still alive. The other one, of course, the wild one died young. Um, <laughs> and, uh, and I just knew his story had to be told. And so I hooked him up with a writer and, and they got his, his story told. And again, he passed away before it came out, but at least the story got told. It would have been gone. It would have been gone otherwise. And, and so I really loved doing that. And then everybody, nobody wanted to write a book with you again because everybody was going to die. Yeah, yeah, I know, I know. Seriously, right? I'm, I'm, I'm really. It's a, it's a bad batting average. In fact, I did another book that was so controversial, and I can't say what it is that like, um, that Harper Collins would not put it out. I had to put it out. It was, it was all done and ready, and the publisher wouldn't put it out. I wouldn't even put my name on it. It was such a dangerous book, uh, but I found an indie publisher to put it out. Um, yeah, and the, those, whoa, whoa, those, wait, wait, those, whoa. Those, those what was dangerous that. about it? Uh, let's just say that it was about a world um, where there's a lot of uh, murder and death. But it was a story I felt like had to be told. And and, this, and it's not going to get told. Can you self-publish? No, it was told. No, no, it came out. I had it, I had it, found a really brave indie publisher to put it out. Oh, what's the name of that one? I don't think I know it. I, I can't. I, I can't say because. Um, my name's not on a book or anything. I just, oh, I like my life and, I, and I have a child. Okay. All right. Fair enough. Fair but enough. I, I guess, I guess my thought is there are stories that need to be told. And if they're not going to be told, I started the imprint to make sure those stories get told. So as soon as an agent approaches me out of a book, I won't put it out because someone else is going to put it out. So, you know, let me ask you this. A, a lot of, uh, uh, you know, a lot of books that you write seem to be not about the subject so much. Um, but about, and again, you're putting yourself in the story. It's about your friendships with the people in the subculture. So like, uh, with, with, again, with the game, I'm, I'm, I'm not asking you about the techniques, but, but, but like, obviously you wouldn't write all this stuff about mystery if you weren't friends with him. Like you, you know, travel to Belgrade with him. Uh, and I wonder for you, if you were just excited, like, Hey, this is a subculture of of men actually that I want to be friends with. Oh, I mean I guess I, I think the answer is like I never I was I really was became real friends with him and was friends with him. In fact the I it was never a book idea. Originally it was just I was a lonely guy who was always in friend zone and could not figure out why I was always in friend zone. So I got into culture just to get out of the friend zone like you know and not be like a wallflower in the party. And then it became so interesting that I thought I had to write a book about him about this world, but I was already, and that point I think happened when we were in Belgrade. Um, so, so the friendship, so basically all my books, they never start as a book idea. It's a life idea that eventually becomes so obsessive. It becomes a book. Well, what about uh, the Jenna Jameson book? 
Oh, that, 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 that was just me. That was me before the game thinking that would get me to have sex, but it didn't work. Uh, <laughs> um, I, I, I would think that would get you close though. It, it got, it got me, it got me close. I definitely like washed porn stars fool around with each other in, in limousines and was on the set of sex films, which gets remarkably boring very quickly, believe it or not, even so, for a, it, Young, it, desperate guy. It's almost like you were in the mega friend zone. Like these are people who are basically would have sex with anybody and you were oh, the friend. Yeah. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Oh yeah, man. Like, yeah, for sure. There's a reason why I got so obsessed with the game. I mean, I mean, I did the Motley Crew book. And again, I didn't do these things just to have sex. I also knew they had great stories and they were kind of cultural icons. But yeah, the Motley, I mean, I'd come on as, as a kid, like to tour with Motley Crew with a backstage pass hanging around my neck. That was going to be like the passport to decadence. And I remember, like, I'd go backstage, I'd get a big stack of backstage passes from, like, one of the road cases, and I'd go out and, like, hand them out to, to women, and they go, thanks. And I'd be like, well, when's the sex supposed to happen? And I didn't, they already had their backstage pass, so it didn't really matter. So, no, I, I mean, I was so pathetic that even with a with a all-access pass on a Motley Crue tour, I still didn't have sex. I remember sometimes in the Chris Rock, the new Chris Rock movie, Top 5, he's lying in bed and talking about, like, I think he calls it ho-sleep when you're asleep and you know a woman's going to come over and like you can't quite sleep because you're waiting for the knock on the door like remember sometimes like a band member a bodyguard would say oh, i'll bring a woman over to your room and i'd stay in the room like half sleeping and it would never happen even <laughs> so so um so you had to do this you had to so you had, had to figure it. out what was going wrong right right so so the new book is called the truth it's 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 way in the future we'll have you back on again but what's that book about um it, it's it's I'll, t- I'll, t- I'll tell you what, I'll, I'll only tell you one, I'll tell you one thing, and then, but we can't ask follow-up questions. Well, yeah, it begins in sex addiction, it begins with me in sex addiction rehab. So. Wow. Let's, let's just have went from, it's, it's, it's a, it's a cosmic irony. Um, uh, but it's really about, um, just everywhere I'm, everywhere I'm coming from now about really trying to understand yourself, your relationships, and kind of be happy in, in, in life. And, and it really is, um, about, uh, trying to fix what's broken with you so you can have a relationship and be in love and, and be happy and not self-sabotage yourself in your life. Okay. But again, on, on, the on kind of the creative technique, it's not really about those things. It starts with you in sex rehab. So you're the story. You're not on a pedestal telling people how to have great relationships. You're trying to figure this out for yourself and you kind of write about what I'm assuming you write about what happens along the way. Yeah. And yeah. And here's what's fascinating. So I started writing the book with a certain fixed idea in mind. And the fixed idea was this. I'll just tell you what the hell you already got me talking about. <laughs> bastard. Um, but yeah, I'm, I'm so, wondering if I use one of your techniques. I don't know now. <laughs> no, it's just that I get into what I'm doing and I, and, uh, and, um, and I'm enjoying the conversation. So, so, um, you probably, you probably are. You, yes. So it's, so I started the idea with a fixed idea in mind, which was that, you know, monogamy doesn't work. Marriage is anachronistic. Um, these are all just sort of, you know, bullshit things that our culture has us do and we just do it because the people before us did it and it's reinforced by the media. And I started with this sort of chip on my shoulder about, about monogamy. Um, and I started writing it from that perspective. And I was thinking my goal in the book was to like develop a new kind of relationship that once other people realized this was the natural way we're supposed to be in relationships, they would all sort of start doing it. And I was going to change relationships and we all start writing some grandiose idea, which of course never happens. Yeah, that sounds and, horrible. <laughs> yeah, it sounds horrible. So I started so I started writing it. I'm reading the book as I'm writing it. And I just think like, this guy's an f- idiot. <laughs> like I'm really reading like me, my story that I'm just writing because I'm writing it as it's happening. And I read it. And again, I'm writing it really thinking I'm right. Then I read it. I'm like, man, this is like some damaged guy. And he's like really messed up. He really thinks he's right. 
he won't listen to anyone when they're even telling him exactly what he should do. And it's kind of sad. And actually through reading the book as I was writing it, it ended up being about, you know, something else and what it should have been. But it was really like sitting down and reading what I wrote and seeing how it comes off on the page. I mean, I don't like to actually see myself from the outside and see who I was. It wasn't a pretty picture. I, I don't know if you write about this, but do you write about that? how you initially started this way and then you kind of hated yourself doing it? Um, you know what? I wanted to, and I tried to put that in there, but it was too meta. It was too meta and it took people out of the, took people out of the story. I thought, let them just have the story and see how that evolution happens. You know, naturally it was too meta of a way to, it wasn't good for the storytelling. I wish I tried, believe me, I tried 10 ways to Sunday to, to put that in there in the introduction. And and have you ever considered writing any of these things as like uh, fiction or or you know again with the game it seems like that that's a natural for uh, a movie. Yeah, um, to answer the two questions, one is like I do think a lot of old older fiction was just nonfiction with you know with with different with different names. Like t- take take Bukowski as an example. Right. All of his novels except for his last one were totally nonfiction. Right, but like Post Office happened to where John Fante who was. I don't know if you read John Fantasy. Yeah, yeah, Ask the Dust, uh, yeah, all of this yeah. stuff. Yeah, so so those are guys who really wrote about their own lives and just kind of changed the names. And nowadays, we want to hear the real story, and it's more interesting to us if it's true. So, you know, probably back then, I would have been writing fiction. Yeah, like uh, Ben Mesrick is another guy who writes a lot of stuff that almost could be novelized, but uh, but writes it as literary nonfiction. Yeah, that's it. And by the and all I read, I mean, 90% of what I, what I read is... Um, is fiction because that's what influences me. What fiction writers do you like? Uh, for sure, John Fante, um, Ask the Dust, The Road to Los Angeles, and there's a story that's in a book of two stories called My Dog Stupid that's just hilarious. Uh, so I love John Fante, James Joyce, Ulysses. I read every three years, um, just because it's more like a pu- of a puzzle than anything else. And every time I get more clues to the puzzle. Right. Uh, let's see. I love, uh, Celine, uh, so, so John yeah. Fontaine and Celine, obviously all in the Bukowski genre. Self, basically self-hating writers, my favorites. <laughs> uh, so, so let me guess hunger by Newt handsome. It must be on your list. Hell yeah. 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 Hunger. Yeah, exactly. Because that's, that's, that's a lineage is Bukowski, Fante. Hunger. What what else is in that? I always look for more books like that and I haven't found. Them. Um, I, I oh. think, I think Raymond Carver is in that genre. Yeah, you know what? I tried, I tried Raymond Carver. I'll, I'll, I'll try some more. And, you know, also not bad is there's a there's a Jack London mo- uh, book called Martin Eden. It's not quite so self hating, but it's a great, a really good. Uh, it, it's it's somehow in that in that genre. Not exactly, but it, it's it's really good. Uh, 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 Dennis uh, Johnson's collection, uh, Jesus Son, the collection yep. of short stories. Yep, yep, that that's good. Oh, and I read recently a Richard Price book called Ladies Man, which is not about a ladies man at all, but uh, but I really enjoyed his style. I really like. Uh, oh, and and freaking uh, Hubert Selby. Um, oh yeah, last exit last, to Brooklyn. Last exit to Brooklyn, and the other one, which is great. Um, can't remember right now, but uh, but yeah, I really like those kind of stream of consciousness, you know, really raw writers. Yeah, those are those are my favorites as well, uh, or or many of my favorites. I, I particularly like. Uh, uh, oh, sorry about the train. I particularly like uh, Dennis Johnson stuff quite a bit. Have you read anything else besides Jesus the Sun Good? Um, I've read all of his books. Great. Yeah, they're all good. Uh, but the collection of short stories I've, is my favorite. Oh, 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 I got one for you. Um, uh, William Kotzwinkle, The Fan Man. I have not read that, and that has been recommended to me. So now now I'll have to read that. Yep. Well, well, Neil, thanks so much for spending the time. 
Uh, I'm glad we had this conversation, got a chance to know each other, because when your book does come out, I want you to come on again, and we'll, we'll talk more directly about it. Great, and I hope we weren't too all over the place for those listening. No, all over the place is great, because what, what else is there to talk about? <laughs> yeah. All right, man, I look forward to talking more in the future. Okay, thanks, Neil. Talk to you soon. All right, take care. Bye. Bye. Now that's what we call done. Visit StansberryRadioChooseYourself.com to download our free report called The Choose Yourself Stories and check back daily for more Ask Altucher. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America.